Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 21st, 2022. Uh, actually, it's not the 21st. It's January the 20th. I'm looking ahead till tomorrow. It's January the 20th. And January, mid-January is a certain kind of time for those of us on the international circuit. It's Davos time. Uh, the World Economic Forum always meets at this time. Uh, the World Economic Forum, for those of you who don't know, is the the, according to itself at least, the international organization for public-private cooperation, um, which brings together very wealthy and powerful people in a little village, a beautiful little village in, uh, in Switzerland, in the Alps, which isn't actually that beautiful for, for, for the Davos week, but it's pretty nice the rest of the year. This year, of course, um, uh, the Davos event is virtual. Um, and the agenda for today um, involves uh, what I would call at least the, the butcher of Beijing, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Ping. Uh, not perhaps the nicest of men, but certainly uh, one of the most powerful. Uh, the guy who puts on uh, Davos every year is a rather dour, miserable looking I think he's German or Austrian, Klaus Schwab. Um, here we have him in Time magazine explaining how to fix the global uh, trust crisis. Uh, there is such a thing, at least according to the Davos website, of real Davos men and women who support something called stakeholder capitalism. It's supposed to be a uh, an event where the world is being improved. And indeed today, according or yesterday, according to Reuters, a millionaire's group called for a wealth tax at virtual uh, Davos. Um, not everyone, though, uh, I think, agrees uh, with, uh, with the idea of Davos being a, a beneficial place or event. Uh, the New York Times writer... Uh, economics correspondent Peter S. Goodman had a piece in Vanity Fair critiquing Klaus Schwab, who, according to Goodman, is building a billionaire circus at Davos. And uh, Peter S. Goodman um, is uh, conveniently coming out with a book this week called Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. And I'm thrilled that Peter S. Goodman is joining us from the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, Peter, uh, are you happy that it's virtual this year? You don't have to schlep up the mountains to report huh. on, the, on the wealthy and the powerful butchers, the, the butchers of Beijing? Well, I, I'm glad uh, that I'm not surrounded by uh, people who are telling us that they're the heroes of the pandemic. I'm glad I get to talk to you. Uh, it was a year ago when it was also virtual that the CEO of Salesforce, this guy, Mark Benioff, whose net worth is now somewhere around $10 billion, actually declared openly that CEOs are the true heroes of the pandemic, not, mind you, 
frontline medical workers, not parents dealing with cooped up children on distance learning, uh, not the people delivering our food, but CEOs who he said, you know, marshaled our vaccines, uh, get, d- financiers who kept the money flowing to small businesses and people like himself, you know, who pulled strings in China where he's connected to another Davos man, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba to secure uh, protective gear like face masks and, and uh, gowns for frontline medical workers across America who didn't have any at the time. Um, and it, it, you know, it was, it was really quite, amazing uh because this was not a gaffe i mean in fact what was remarkable was how unremarkable this was on on this panel no one challenged this depiction nobody really picked this up uh in the press uh and it wasn't until you know my book came out a couple days ago that suddenly uh people uh decided that this was worthy of, of of some comment uh and uh it's striking that not only do we have this tremendous self aggrandizement but it's really a kind of prophylactic against uh, redistribution. So, yes, I'm glad that I'm not saturated in that kind of worldview and I get to sit and talk to you. A prophylactic against redistribution. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, Peter Goodman has a knack with the language. Davos man, how the billionaires devoured the world. I've been reading it all day, Peter. It's turning me into a Bolshevik, although it's not hard to be a Bolshevik these days with Headlines like in the FT today that um, the top Wall Street banks paid out $142 billion in pay and benefits last year to men like David Solomon and Jamie Dimon, who, who like Mark Benioff, is um, profiled, if that's the right word, in Davos Man, as a typical Davos Man. I'm curious, Peter, though, in terms of the book, a lot of people would say, well, you know, Benioff's obviously a bit of a fraud. He's self-aggrandizement. You can't drive around San Francisco without bumping into one edifice or another celebrating Benioff's beneficence, uh, hospitals, parks. But is the problem with the system itself rather than men like Benioff who who aren't breaking the law. They're simply playing by the rules and getting rich because they're smart and lucky. Well, the problem is that the system is run by people like Mark Benioff. I mean, you can't separate the two. So it, they're running not... the candy store as well as going in and, 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 and dipping their hands into the, the jars. Well, you know, you could say, uh, why should we criticize Mark Benioff, who a couple of times, uh, even as his company has raked in billions of dollars in revenues, has managed to pay the modest sum of zero in taxes to the federal government that, you know, why why focus on that? Let's focus on his philanthropy. I mean, he's he's kicked in his own money uh, toward a ballot initiative that passed in San Francisco that taxes wealthy companies like his to fund services for homeless people. Uh, he's very active with his checkbook for various educational initiatives. Hey, you know, he didn't write the tax rules, except that's not actually true. I mean, he didn't personally write the tax rules, but he's part of the business roundtable. He finances it which you know, played a crucial role in delivering the $1.5 trillion package of tax cuts that Trump uh, passed uh, shortly after he came into office. And, you know, companies like, uh, I'm sorry, entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I mean, these giant lobby shops, they, they don't just by accident represent the people with all the money. Amazon now has 100 lobbyists working in Washington. We simply can't divorce the system from the people who are running the system. And those people have designed the system to send more money from the bottom up. They've designed a system that 
has been carefully engineered to reduce regulations, to dismantle public infrastructure, take the proceeds, put it into their own pockets. And the worst part of this is along the way they're selling us on this fairy tale that that's actually in everybody's good, that the public ultimately benefits so long as they benefit. Uh, and, and, you know, we've been running an open air experiment in this idea that I refer to as the cosmic lie in my book. And it's worked out zero times that we've gotten the trickle down benefits that are perpetually promised when we cut taxes for the wealthiest people. You talk about a fairy tale, Peter. Fairy tales, of course, are best told in up on mountains, kind of uh, Davos and, and, and Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain kind of remind me of one another. Maybe we need a rewriting of the Magic Mountain in terms of Davos. When I was looking at the kinds of discussions that happen at virtual Davos, we have something about space tech making life on Earth better, run, of course, by the ubiquitous Al Gore, another typically Davos man. We have digital healthcare can be a catalyst for greater health care equity. We have forums on boosting capital for development to sustain foreign direct investment. Um, we have something on digital public goods, appropriate, I guess, in the age of Salesforce, Amazon, and Facebook. Is there any point to Davos, Peter? You, you do a very good job in the, in the book uh, satirizing it. Does it have any value or should it simply be shut down or ignored by heavy-hitting journalists like you at the New York Times? Well, I mean, I think there is value to powerful, smart people getting together to talk about the world's problems. The question is, what actually comes of it? And for, first of all, you know, the forum is lots of different things to different people. So there's the earnest program that you're sifting through, which is full of uh, all kinds of conversations about climate change and gender inequality and uh, executive compensation reform, corporate governance, like all these kinds of things. And the people who go to Davos most frequently will we'll sort of uh, cast a beleaguered look at the agenda and then they'll tell you like it's a badge of honor like oh I haven't gone to any events at all this year I've spent all my time at you know Mark Benioff's private Aloha themed party where he flies in the black eyed peas you love Benioff party. don't you Peter he's your it's he's not your just Benioff friend. not to pick on Benioff <laughs> I mean all, all of these guys you know Google Facebook, like they they actually fill entire buildings on the main street of Davos. There's a hotel, this giant colonnaded fortress called the Belvedere, where, you know, every consulting company you've ever heard of, every bank, they have cocktail parties, they have banquets. So, so the Devins, you, you, you make the point in the book, and I think it's a good point that Benioff came out of the uh, the Larry Ellison stable. He 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 he, he, he earned his business spurs at um at Oracle before forming Salesforce. Larry Ellison is a very different kind of cowboy capitalist who has no interest in the public good. He doesn't want to be done. about man. Benioff that makes him more objectionable since, at least according to you, he's deeply hypocritical. Would he be better off just being Larry Ellison and buying boats and girls and cars? I mean, I think you could argue that like with Ellison, we know what we're getting, right? Here's a guy who's really good at catering to the shareholder, which is good for him and good for the shareholder. And he doesn't pretend to be serving the interests of society. He makes software. If you need the kind of software he makes, must be pretty good software. It's not much different from it. Salesforce. I mean, basically, Salesforce is the digital version of oh, Oracle. No. 
Oh no, no, no. I mean, no? May, maybe in terms of their actual, maybe in terms of their actual product. Yeah, sure. They're competitors, but no, I mean, in terms of the ethos, I mean, Benioff would tell you that like he came up with the idea for Salesforce while he was on a sabbatical in Southern India, meeting with a woman <laughs> known as the hugging saint who advised him that he had to give back to society. And that he tells you in his memoir, and he'll tell you the story personally if you call him up and ask him. You know, that's how he came up with this idea that 1% of all the revenues, 1% of all the time would be dedicated to philanthropic causes. Yeah, I think the impact of that for society is much more meaningful because we're in a time of supposed stakeholder capitalism where lobby shops like the Business Roundtable Larry Fink, who's the largest fund manager on earth, controls $10 trillion in funds stocked with, you know, pension. No wonder he's smiling in this photo. <laughs> exactly. So, so these guys have coalesced around this idea that Milton Friedmanism is over. Milton Friedman, who essentially said, as long as we're trying to be greedy and, and send profit to shareholders, the markets will take care of everything. Well, no, that we're told by people like Benioff and Fink and Klaus Schwab is no longer. Now, companies are organs of social change and social progress, and they're going to deal with uh, societal problems. They're going to cater to local communities. And well, Is there no credibility to that, um, uh, uh, Peter? We've had a number of shows in which people like Ronnie Cohen, the Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur, um, sure. written a book about stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, actually moderated one of his Like at Harvard dedicated that. You're saying it's a complete fraud? These public-private, this this stakeholder capitalism is just a lie? I'm not saying it's a lie. I'm saying that it's unilateral, and there's no guarantee of So it's a top-down thing, it, yeah. decisions and language made by wealthy people it, to make themselves feel better. It means whatever people want it to mean. I mean, there. I'm sure there are companies where people run them, and they do care about climate like change. Like Patagonia. I mean, what would you make of a company like Patagonia? Great. Great. I mean, I'm not criticizing a company for running itself uh, with a dedication to social goals. Hey, that's great. But I, I'm not willing to dismantle the government uh, while I'm in investing in the idea that we can just count on the beneficence of billionaires to fix our problems. I would like labor unions to decide uh, how much people get paid and under what working conditions. I would well, like a financial I mean, to be fair to Benioff, I'm not sure he would necessarily argue with that. Um you no, he, profile, wouldn't, he wouldn't argue with that. Which I is mean, what you profile him... five people in the book, five da what you call Davos men, the ubiquitous Jeff Bezos, uh, Steve Schwartzman, a, a Wall Street guy, a CEO of the Blackstone Group, uh, Benioff, of course, uh, Jamie Diamond, um, billionaire businessman, CEO of JP Morgan, and Larry Fink, who we talked about earlier. Are they all tied together ideologically? I mean, they're all enormously wealthy, powerful people. I mean, what are sides different Bezos, ideologically? For example, and Benioff, apart from being named B. Huh. Well, Benioff actually bristles at the idea that these are his people. So, I mean, ideologically, if you ask them for their personal views, they're across the spectrum. But, I mean, I argue in the book that ideology doesn't really matter to any of them. I mean, they're pro-free market when that suits their needs. They're pro-government rescue when they can get a piece of the action. Uh, they, they, they generally believe in the bottom line, and they will fashion an argument that equates to the bottom line. I, I, I mean, Schwartzman you know, financed Trump's second campaign, uh, rode uh, down uh, to the bitter end with Trump right up till January 6th. You know, whereas 
Uh, it's it's unclear what I mean. Diamond says he's a registered Democrat, or at least he has been in the past. I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to put a commonality on them in that sense. But what's common about them is that they all have the same sort of messiah complex, where they're very good at fashioning narratives where they're the good guys no matter what. Like take Schwartzman. Schwartzman's worth thirty four billion dollars. He's the world's largest private equity investor. He feasted on the foreclosure crisis in the United States. Bought up. Lots of abandoned homes, he would tell you. And he would, he actually describes this in his memoir as an act of civic virtue. Like, look past the hundreds of millions of dollars he made, to, uh, to, uh, billions of dollars for the financial institutions that traded in bonds that were pledged. If this was all about, you know, fixing up neighborhoods and, you know, restoring these houses to their former grandeur, mowing the lawns that had been overrun. Like you can almost hear the soundtrack for a life insurance commercial with like some adorable puppy romping on the lawn with the toddler. In reality, he launched a company called Invitation Homes that then jacked up the prices of rents for the people he ended up renting these buildings to. He cut maintenance as a cost. He made it impossible for anybody to reach a human being if they had a plumbing problem or some other problem. And I mean, this is... This is a typical Davos man story, right? It's not enough that he simply gets all this money. He he wants to protect himself from accountability. These from people then, uh, they're kind of greedy. They're not only greedy for money, they're greedy for virtue. Is this an American thing? You, you, oh, you, I don't you, think you, it's Your, your book is thing. not just about American billionaires, but it does mostly focus on them. But you talk about other billionaires. Uh, George Osborne, for example, who features in the book, he doesn't seem to be particularly greedy for virtue. Huh, really? I mean, George Osborne would call himself, you know, dedicated to international cooperation, transparency. I mean, he inflicted a decade of, of critical austerity on Britain. We are talking with Peter S. Goodman, the author of an incredibly provocative, radical new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. First part of this conversation, we talked about these Davos men, how indeed they are devouring the world, how they are hypocrites of the worst kind, moral hypocrites, um, claiming to be making the world a better place, but actually ruining it for the rest of us. Uh, after the break, I want to talk about how to fix Davos Man, or the world that is being made by Davos Man, how to make it fairer again. Uh, so we'll be back in about two or three. Uh, we'll be back in about a minute and a half with uh, Peter S. Goodman, the author of Davos Man. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected 
uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Peter S. Goodman, the author of Davos Man, a hard-hitting polemic against our new global billionaire elite. Uh, in the first half of this conversation, Peter laid out the problem, uh, but he's not shy also in the book to come up with fixes. Peter, talk about how we're going to fix this system that has been so horribly corrupted by Davos men like uh, Jamie Diamond and Mark Benioff? Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that what I propose as fixes are not radical. Uh, and I don't think the fix has to be radical. It's more like a restoration of what we already had. I mean, if you go back to the three decades after World War II in the States or in the UK and many other major economies for that matter, uh, what we had was uh, truly the old cliche of the rising tide lifting all boats. I, I, I don't want a time machine that takes us back to 75. I mean, we, we had all sorts. We had Jim Crow in the States. We had a disastrous uh, war in Vietnam, to say nothing of racial and gender discrimination that continues. But we did have an economic system that took the gains of capitalism and distributed them much more equitably to just about every community. And the way we get back to that is simply by returning to progressive taxation, and enforcement of antitrust provisions so that we don't have monopoly powers operating, you know, while they're lecturing us about free markets, actually gobbling up one another to to destroy markets and turn them into oligopolies. Uh, and, and we need to uh, strip away rules that prevent labor from organizing so labor can actually bargain on a level playing field. You could fix an awful lot of problems if you just achieve those things. Aren't you falling into the Benioff trap, though, of describing something that's incredibly hard as being very easy? Your critique of Benioff was he uh, he, he made uh, stakeholder capitalism sound really simple. You're suggesting uh, that we're not at the end of history. We're, at, in a sense, the beginning of history. You actually critique Fukuyama in the book. Right. Uh, you say that we want to go back to the period after the Second World War, the New Deal, or perhaps the great society of the 1960s, but you know as an economic correspondent that we can never go back. And the reality of politics in 2022 is that uh, Biden now is struggling. He's struggling with uh, Build Back Better, uh, and it's likely in the next election that the Republicans are going to do extremely well. So how are we going to get back to well, either the great society or the New Deal? Well, first of all, I, I, I don't buy this idea that what I'm saying is like how Benioff operates. Benioff and the rest of the Davos men are constantly telling us about win-win solutions, which is a way of obviating the need for anyone to sacrifice. If we can all win, then why should anybody give up anything? And that's that's just a prescription. Well, you're suggesting that it's just a handful of billionaires who will lose and the rest of us will win. I mean, look, if we had a wealth tax, if we had a serious wealth tax that forced billionaires like Steve Schwartzman and Larry Fink and Jeff Bezos and the rest of them uh, to to pay you know more a share 
of their wealth than the people who are scrubbing their toilets. Uh, we could gin up a lot of money to do a lot of things, including, you know, expand the social safety net, which would make it easier, by the way, for startup companies. I mean, you could do a lot more that's entrepreneurial. You could allow the market to fix a lot of our problems if people weren't stuck in jobs because they're afraid to give up their health care. If people weren't unable to move to another place because, you know, their house is under underwater. I mean, if you made failure softer like they do in the Nordics, then we could have more failure, which means we could take more. Well, rest. Peter, you remember that famous exchange between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the 2016 uh, primary when uh, uh, Bernie was going on and on about Denmark and Hillary said, I love Denmark, Bernie, but. We can't be Denmark. I mean, are you suggesting that the American model should simply replicate the Scandinavian one? It's not realistic. I mean, we'd all like that. Who wouldn't? Why is it not realistic? Well, it would involve dramatic political changes in the system, which there seems to be very little evidence. I mean, one of the headlines today um, is the Democratic power brokers are abandoning Christian cinema. Uh, progressives like Bernie Sanders are suggesting primary challenges to cinema and um, the guy in West Virginia. I mean, the politics of this are quite radical, for better or worse. I'm not saying that's bad, but your presentation of this as being commonsensical and easy doesn't seem to I, be... I'm not saying it's easy. Nowhere do I say it's easy. You're, you're putting that phrase in my mouth. I say it is simple and it's not radical. I say it's a restoration of well, it is radical, for better had. or worse. It doesn't make it bad because it's radical. It is radical to go back. Antitrust to enforcement is radical. Progressive taxation is radical. I mean, the, I mean, is, is national health care radical? Like, I mean, these these things exist in most major democracies. I mean, if, if you accept that everything's impossible, that represents a change from the current situation, and you buy into whatever the politics are of the moment, that's the only politics of possibility, then yeah, we should give up. We should just write a check to to Jeff Bezos and, you know, accept that you're going to get the comforts and convenience of Amazon. And, you know, let's all just live our lives and wait till we all die of climate change annihilation. But, you know, that's that's not how I mean, the truth is that most of the things that we're told by Davos men we can't afford are things that other major democracies seem to be able to afford. Fine. National health care affordable education. I mean, these are these are not radical reaches at all. Now, is this difficult? Yeah, you bet it's difficult because we're living in a world in which Davos man has at his disposal lobbyists, accountants, lawyers. I mean, and is very good at wielding social media to dispense, you know, misinformation. I mean, I mean, Amazon during the first wave of the pandemic, after they got a lot of bad press, for leaving their warehouse workers operating without paid sick leave and no protection actually created a bunch of television spots that, that they then insinuated into real broadcast channels across America as news spots on how all their workers were happy and they were taking care of people. I mean, I mean the, the apparatus that Davos man has at his disposal to protect himself from all of these policies is vast, which makes it incredibly difficult. But I think you start by informing people that the asks themselves are not radical. You don't have to be a Bolshevik to you know, react to a world in which Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion and his warehouse workers are literally having to choose between you know, getting their paycheck so they can keep paying the rent or going to work in a place where they could die of, a, of, a, of COVID. I mean, that's not, that itself is not radical. So I just, I just don't accept that criticism. It's exceedingly difficult and it will involve 
serious political organization around the things that it turns out people actually want. You know, wealth do, you think, taxes, uh, wealth. do you think, Peter, it might involve violence? We had the classical historian Walter Scheidel, the Stanford historian, on the show a year or two ago. Um, he has a, a really interesting, well, it's not so new book out, The Great Level of Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Um, and he suggests that the kind of inequality that exists in the United States at the moment between the Bezos, between Jeff Bezos and the kind of people who work in his um, in his production, in his distribution networks, um, that historically those have only got been got rid of through violence. Might there be a need for some sort of violent insurrection? We've already seen it on the right. Perhaps we need it on the left too. I mean, I'm certainly not going to be leading the parade for a violent insurrection, uh, but I don't think there's any question that what we've learned, and I think January 6th is a good example, is that when you allow huge numbers of people to be marinated in scarcity, uh, they're going to develop some crazy ideas. And they're going to be susceptible to political opportunists who are offering simplistic solutions. So, you know, in Britain, we get Brexit as this reaction to immigration that involves an act of elaborate self-harm economically. In Italy, you know, the reaction to people losing jobs in traditional uh, artisanal crafts, you know, making fabric, leather work, making shoes, you know, is, is to embrace uh, a, a series of demagogues who blame everything on, on migrants. Similar story in Sweden, similar story in France. I mean, January 6th is simply part of that. It, it's certainly part of uh, the reality that large numbers of people have rightfully concluded that their needs don't count for very much in the world as governed by the people who write the rules. So, I mean, we've got to deal with the scarcity. Will there be violence? I mean, I, I don't see how we get back to something that's more stable until we figure out how to share the spoils of capitalism. Well, ultimately, at the, the end of the book, you talk about the need for democracy, but this is a political issue. Is the current Democratic Party, is it able to realize the kind of political objectives, economic objectives that you lay out in this book? I mean, it's certainly not looking that way right now. Uh, I mean, there was a so, lot of so, talk. So, of so what taxes. has to happen? Do we need a new political party, new political arrangements, new kinds of democratic systems? What needs to change? I mean, we definitely need uh, to move away from this idea that it's just about winning elections through you know, in incremental uh, progress toward goals that people want. We actually have to focus on outcomes. We have to we have to focus on expanding healthcare. We have to focus on making education more affordable for ordinary people. We have to make sure that everybody has some kind of healthcare. We have to improve public infrastructure. Uh, and you know, the form that that takes politically that's that's beyond the scope of 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 my book. But if we don't achieve those things. It's very difficult to imagine that the instability and, and recrimination and the sort of toxic conversation that we're having in, in much of the world. I mean, in, in, in certainly in America, certainly in the UK, Italy, uh, India, Brazil, you know, this, this doesn't get better until more people have a stake in the system. And when you leave people outside of the system, conspiracy theories will fester. Is there a need for a new kind of Davos? I, and you're still not convincing me. I mean, I've heard this time and time again from people like you. Oh, we need more education. We need higher taxes. But it never happens. I mean, I'm not against it. I agree with you. 
but the, the, none of this stuff se- seems viable. How do we begin? Do we need, you know, you're, you 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 build your argument around Davos, which is obviously an absurd circus. It's not a, it's like shooting fish in a barrel for a sophisticated journalist like yourself and critiquing people like Benioff is also very easy. But don't we need something different, something profoundly different? rather than simply going back to the New Deal, going back to the Great Society. I'm not saying we go back to the New Deal. I, I don't well, want to You are saying that machine. in the book. You simply, you, you say in the book, we just need to go back. We need to go back to a system. No, 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 no. No, I very carefully say, I'm not looking for a time machine back to 1975. I mean, we've got a lot more people represented uh, in media. Uh, we've, we, we've got a lot more people at the table. I mean, society's changed dramatically. We've got tremendous technological progress that we want to hang on to. I, I don't, I'm not... I, I have no fetish for 1975 in terms of in well, one you key regard because that was a bad year. But you 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 do have a fetish for the the post war years. I mean, I have a fetish for the idea that we need to find ways to we do need to return to one key thing, and that's workers getting a commensurate share of the gains of productivity. And that, you know, if you want to accuse me of wanting to be Denmark in that regard, yeah, I do want to be Denmark. I I think, you know, it's a tremendous thing that throughout the Nordics, you have strong labor unions that are truly powerful, that could bring economies to a halt if this system broke down, opposite employers associations that speak for whole ranges of employers, and they sit down and they negotiate, and everyone understands that the workers are going to have to get a share of the productivity gains. And as a result of that, you are able to achieve things that are unimaginable in another context. I mean, the first time I went to Sweden, which I think was back in 2017, I went to a a big mining operation where a bunch of truck drivers were threatened with automated trucks. And I was stunned by the reaction. Their reaction was like, oh, that's fine. You know, so that might cost us our jobs, but they'll train us for some other jobs because their lived experience told them that if their companies were more competitive, they would benefit. Now, in most societies, I mean, like the U.S. and the U.K., chiefly, workers have every incentive to just monkey wrench any kind of progress, technological progress. They don't have any reason to believe that if their company's more competitive, that's going to help them one iota. That just might make it easier for the company to automate them out of existence or send their job across an ocean. I mean, that has to be the basis. Whatever, whether you want to talk about another political party, new systems, whatever, that has to be the basis of the future economy. And that's future looking. That's that's based on, you know, embracing the technology that we've got. I don't want to go back to 1975. I just want to go back to working people getting a share of the gains of capitalism. We've had a lot of shows about this. We even had one of your New York Times colleagues, Jim Tankersley, uh, about reviving the middle class in America. Finally, Peter, give me a couple of really concrete things that could happen to begin to rebuild a post-Davos man world. I mean, in the U.S., we could get to something like universal health care. I mean, I think if, if you took away the fear of not having health insurance... You'd allow a lot of creative people who are now stuck in jobs that they're not happy about. Uh, They don't see any paths for advancement to go out and start their own businesses. You'd allow people to leave jobs uh, that are neither making them happy nor making their their families more uh, prosperous. You'd create the sort of social mobility that I think Americans just believe innately, contrary to the data we still have. And politically, that would come, what, with someone on the left running for president? Because Biden certainly isn't in favor of that. It looks like he's going to run again. 
Well, I mean, I'm 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 not going to get into political prosecution. Well, you have to because if you're calling for this stuff, you're, you're talking politics, Peter. You can't just say, "Well, I don't want to get into politics," and you're calling for universal health care. I mean, are you are you what? suggesting then well, that I, real fix is is to elect someone like? And I'm not against you. To, to elect Bernie Sanders or a Bernie like a, a, a Bernie Sanders like candidate, I, mean, I I think you have to figure out how to strip the money that is the decisive force in politics out of that process, and then people can get things they actually want. I mean, most of the stuff I'm talking about, this stuff polls well. This is I'm not I'm not just reaching for utopia. Most Americans want. Something like national health care. They want it to be cheaper. Well, if they do, they why has it been so hard? Is it because of Davos men controlling the media? Is that what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm saying. Uh, I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them is the fact that uh, surely you've noticed that in this country, we have an electoral college system, uh, which doesn't amount to popular democracy. Uh, we also have uh, restrictions on, on voting rights. We have corporations that have the ability to funnel unlimited amounts of money campaigns. And that is Davos man's responsibility. Davos man is very good at coming up with misdirection, at confusing people, understanding that confusion is always a recipe for the maintenance of the status quo. I mean, you want to talk politics, anybody who's works in politics will tell you the easiest thing you can do is kill a bill. It's very difficult to get a bill. Let's end with um, your your best friend, uh, Mark Benioff. If he's watching, I'm sure he's got nothing better to do. Um, he, he does seem to want to do good. I've met him a couple of times. He certainly doesn't seem to be as evil as, as somebody like uh, Jeff Bezos, who I've also met. Um, what would you tell Benioff to do if he wants to be genuinely decent and make this country the better place that he claims he wants to make it? What should somebody like Benioff actually do? Stop going to Davos. Stop presumably talking about stakeholder capitalism. No, he, he can go to Davos. Go to Davos and tell people, if we're serious about what we're talking about, we need to tax wealth because there's no way. I mean, he he's now telling he's us. against taxing wealth, is he, Benioff? I mean, whether he's against it or for it, like he's keeping it to himself. I mean, he's benefiting from the status quo while he's giving us crumbs on his terms alone. And, you know, he's financing ballot initiatives in his own hometown to expand services for homeless people while he's paying no federal taxes. I mean, if, if, if we want real change, we need the people who run the system to tell us that there are things that can be financed if the wealthiest people pay their fair share. And I mean, you're, you're asking, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in the billionaires deciding to make that happen. I think the public is going to have to organize to make that happen. But if you put the question to me, yeah, that's something that Benioff could do that would be truly progressive. Well, there you have it, Benioff, Mark Benioff, if you're watching. Uh, the Wisdom of Peter S. Goodman, the author of Davos Man, just out uh, for the week of Davos, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Um, wonderful polemic and uh, wonderful argument, Peter. You're very, very good. You're the economics correspondent of the New York Times. That's your day job. Um, you're talking to me from the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, what else should people be reading? Um, in potentially the revolutionary year of 2022. Do we need to go back to the Russians? Well, you said you had Chris Leonard on your show already, The Lords of, of Easy Money. That's a terrific book. Uh, we I, are uh, having him on the show, Leonard. Uh, he's upcoming. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I think you'll enjoy him. And his his, his book is, it, it couldn't be more timely. Uh, I mean, well, at a time. Could, uh, I think your book couldn't certainly couldn't be more timely this week. Davos Men, The Davos Man, 
how the billionaires devoured the world. The real Davos man that Peter S. Goodman exposes is much, much less huggable than Mark Benioff. Congratulations on the book, Peter. Keep Thanks on throwing bombs, at least literal, uh, verbal ones rather than literal ones. And we'll have you back on the show. It's a really important subject. And, and you do a very good job, I think, um, making your argument. So uh, this is the great subject of the 2020s. And I think it needs to be discussed in more detail. So I'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Love it. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it.